is 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Stop, drop, shut him down, open up shop. No, that's how this train rolls. Oh, traders want to try. Traders want to pry, then traders wonder why. Traders gonna cry. First quarter's in the books. It's okay to look. Market's already booked a 7% gain. Yeah, it took some pain, some storms, and heavy rain. But the Nasdaq's clocking gains. It's okay to complain, even harder to explain. How this rally could sustain the disdain and the strain. Insane in the membrane, cypress on the brain. Throwing sets in the air. Did you even dare to buy the damn dip? Don't trip, take a sip, lean back, get a grip. Get hip to the trend when the trend is your friend. No idea how this ends, but don't wait. Don't be late. When momentum comes to town, jump up, jump around. House of Pain's getting down. It's about to get real. Let's make some progress. Next stop, Q2 on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and say hello to the second quarter. We are riding in with some momentum in the equity markets coming off a higher week, a higher month, and a higher quarter. Driving that train, the NASDAQ up 17% in the first three months of the year, while the S&P 500 booked a 7% gain, and the Dow Industrials, well, they came in flat. Given all the turbulence so far this year, that scorecard is pretty impressive. Bank failures, hawkish central banks, inflation woes, recession chatter, geopolitical concerns, the whole gumbo of anxiety wrapped up in a smelly sock, and still, equity markets book gains. Not just in the US, either. The MSCI European Index is up 10%, and the outlook over there is very cloudy. Equity markets also gain between 3 and 5% in India, Japan, Australia, and Latin America. Maybe investors see the end of rate hikes coming later this year. Maybe a lot of the bad news is priced in and investors are getting a little bit more comfortable owning growth sectors like tech again. We know that behind this rally in equity markets are just a handful of the biggest, most widely held stocks out there. That's that concentration we've been talking about, with only 33% of S&P 500 company shares managing to outperform the index since the start of the quarter. That is well below the long-term average. We also know that more money has been flowing out of equities on a net basis in the past few weeks and months as investors have been hiding out in money market funds and cash amid the banking meltdown. But this momentum in the big markets has actually been building since late last year. As Ben Carlson of Animal Spirits points out, since the start of the fourth quarter of 2022, international stocks are up 28%. The NASDAQ 100, that's up 19%. The S&P 500, up 15%. In fact, the S&P 500 has now posted two consecutive quarters of gains, according to Fundstrat. That's a pattern we haven't seen in any bear market over the past 50 years. So was October the bear market low? Is this a bear trap? A false signal for an uptrend that's only going to get swatted by a swift shift in sentiment as more bad news comes rolling in and the shorts gorge themselves? We're going to get into that in a few minutes with the guys and the Dans of risk reversal. But first, let's get into our big three for the week. Number one, individual investors like you and me, we kind of lost that love and feeling for buying stocks. We see it in our sentiment surveys, we see it in trading activity, and we see it in the numbers. According to Vanda Research, individual investors bought close to $8.9 billion of U.S. equities on a net basis over the past two weeks, not including Friday, and that's down from $17 billion a month earlier. We're still keeping up with our regular passive retirement contributions, according to Fidelity, but we are not impulse shopping like we used to. And institutional investors, they're also feeling kind of skittish. According to Bank of America's March Global Fund Manager Survey, U.S. equity allocation has fallen to an 18-year low, 
44% of those surveyed are underweight U.S. equities. That's a lot of pessimism, which is usually a pretty good contrarian signal, except that pessimism is rooted in concerns that these higher interest rates that are going to be with us for a while are going to do some real damage to global economies, banks, liquidity, and earnings. The worst, they think, may be yet to come. Which leads us to number two. So where's all the money going if it's not going into stocks? Well, money market funds, of course. According to the Investment Company Institute, another $66 billion flowed into money market funds last week, and now a full $5.2 trillion are sitting in that asset class, earning somewhere between 3 and 4% for investors who are seeking shelter from the storm. But while $5.2 trillion sounds like a lot of money, and it kind of is, we got to put those numbers in perspective. And our pal Liz Ann Saunders of Schwab points out that while money market funds have surged to a new high as a percent of the S&P 500 market cap, that share is still below the levels we saw during the COVID bear market. The S&P 500's market cap is close to $34.3 trillion, in case you're wondering, and there's $53 trillion worth of debt issuance across the U.S. bond market. Those are big numbers. The $5.3 trillion in money market funds is a lot, but not really when you think about those other asset classes and its short-term money. And number three, while we've been hearing a growing drumbeat around the demise of the U.S. dollar around the world and what that would mean for the U.S. economy and the financial system, let's put a few other things in perspective. Yes, the U.S. dollar is the de facto global reserve currency. It's been that way since the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, when 44 nations agreed to adopt the greenback, which was then backed by gold. Many countries still peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar, and commodities like oil, they're priced in dollars. But yes, countries like Russia and China and even Saudi Arabia would like to change that. We know China and Saudi Arabia are talking about using the yuan to buy and sell oil, and that would be a very big deal. But when we look inside the composition of global bank currencies, China's yuan, which went from 1% of global currency transactions to 3% between 2017 and 2021, it actually fell in 2022, according to the IMF. The euro, the yen, and the pound are all higher, but nothing comes close to the US dollar, which accounts for close to 90% of all global currency transactions. Could that change? Absolutely, but it's going to take a very long time for that to happen. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's going to be a shortened trading week here in the U.S. with markets closed on Friday for the Good Friday holiday. The labor market will be back in the spotlight, though, with the release of the non-farm payrolls report for March, which comes out on Friday. Economists project U.S. employers added around 240,000 jobs in March, compared to February's gain of 311,000. The unemployment rate likely remained unchanged at 3.6%, which is near a 50-year low. The U.S. economy has added a combined 815,000 jobs in the first two months of 2023, or an average of over 407,000 per month. The supply-demand dynamic in the labor market is still way out of balance. Ahead of the jobs report, we're going to get the JOLTS report for February on Tuesday. That's the Job Openings Labor Turnover Survey. That's going to tell us how many open jobs there are still in the United States. And that's followed by ADP's National Employment Report, which tracks private sector payrolls, which comes out on Wednesday. OPEC ministers met on Sunday, and Saudi Arabia led a surprise cut in production of 500,000 barrels a day from May until the end of the year. Kuwait, the UAE, and Russia also pledged cuts exceeding 1 million barrels a day, abandoning assurances to hold supply steady. That means higher prices are likely coming to the oil market. Given recent chatter between China and Saudi Arabia about moving away from the dollar, we're going to be listening closely for more clues about that. 
The earnings calendar is super light this week as companies are in the quiet period following the close of the first quarter and the beginning of a new earnings season in just a couple of weeks. We're still going to hear results from Conagra, Constellation Brands, and Levi Strauss, to name a few. As for the upcoming earnings season, according to FactSet, for the first quarter of 2023, the estimated earnings decline for the S&P 500 is a negative 6.6%. If a negative 6.6% is the actual decline for the quarter, it'll mark the largest earnings decline reported by the index since the second quarter of 2020 when earnings fell 31.8%. Is that already priced into the stock market? The bulls say yes, the bears say... Long before financial influencers were influencers and anyone with a ring light and an iPhone could dish out their secret sauce on social media, a breed of traders who grew up in the commodities options hedge funds and fast money days of the go-go 90s and early 2000s were changing the face and voice of financial media. They were smart, they were charming, they were quick, and they became our friends through the financial blogosphere, FinTwit, and Business TV. They are the OGs of financial influence, and they're still doing it today, even better than when they started over a decade ago. They are Guy Adami and Dan Nathan, the founders of Risk Reversal, a multimedia platform of podcasts, YouTube shows, Twitter spaces, and smart conversations about the market with the smartest people in the world. They're also longtime cast members of CNBC's Fast Money, hosted by the mighty Melissa Lee, and they also have other full-time jobs somehow, some way, and they're also our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. So good to have you on the show, Guy and Dan. Thanks for being here. My man, Caleb, it is an honor to be with you. Long boarding my way into the studio, by the way. Uh, yes, sir. Of course. That's how we roll. Well, we're actually live and direct from your studios in Manhattan and doing a little home and away podcasting session. I'm on the on the tape show, which drops Monday, right when the Express drops. So check that out. We're going to put the link in the show notes and all the great shows you guys have on that platform. You guys are generating so much content every week. You're talking about the markets. You're talking about your trades, your opinions, and you're also doing it with full candor and transparency. Transparency, and you're basically working and chatting with your friends in the industry as you do it. So, how did you get to this point? And I'll start with you, guy, where you're able to work with your friends, trade the markets, talk about it all the time, and build a business here. It's fun because we enjoy it. Since 1986, when I started, I've always had a fascination with the markets, the psychology of the markets, the emotion of the markets. For me, if I wasn't going to be shortstop for the Yankees or tight end for the Giants, Financial markets trading was the closest thing I was going to get to professional sports. And you know, 36 years later, 37 years later, I still get a buzz from it. So it's just, I think the love of the markets, the love of the business makes doing what we do, I don't want to say easy, but certainly enjoyable, Caleb. Yeah. Well, it's the love of the game. You love what you do, but you also get to work with your friends. So Dan, how did you guys put this together where you're like, let's actually create a media business around the business that we do. How did you make all of that happen? Well, it's funny, as you mentioned, you know, Guy Adami was the original, you use the term OG guy, that means original gangster, just so you know, so you don't have to go to Investopedia to search it. for that. Yeah, no, I know. It's interesting, I had seen Guy Adami on TV for years before I ever found myself on Fast Money. And for me, I love trading and I love the action. I love the fact that every day there's a new story that's kind of, you know, drive the narrative. And so for me, I grew up in the business with the TV on, CNBC, the volume off. And in many ways, that Guy Adami is much better the opposite way, right? So after doing Fast Money for so many years with him, and you know, listen, we love that show. We love doing it with Melissa Lee and our panelists there. But we're like, at some point, 
some of the people who email us and tweet at us and they want, you just mentioned the term transparency. We want to be as transparent as possible. They want longer form conversations. They love the nature of the interaction on Fast Money or on CNBC or other networks, but they also want to hear you go a bit deeper on that. And they want to hear you tease out differing views or when you all agree, you know, that sort of thing. So we kind of said to ourselves, it was actually just kind of happenstance before the pandemic guy and I started doing some longer form videos. We always wanted to do a podcast. Nobody was doing it the way we wanted to do it. And so we just had some time during the pandemic and we spent, I think much of 2020 kind of figuring out what the product would be. Then we started thinking about who are some of the contributors we'd want to do it with. And we launched the on the tape podcast in January, 2021. It couldn't have been a better time when you think of the frenzy that was going on with meme stocks and SPAC and unprofitable tech stocks and the art craze and then obviously crypto. So we wanted to do it in an unapologetic way and just kind of be as authentic to our own trading sensibilities and just do it on a daily basis. Yeah, and not have to squeeze it into the B block, which is only six minutes long and bracketed by a commercial and a promo, which that's the business of television. It has been great for your careers and you guys are great on that show and who's better than the mighty Melissa Lee, one of my favorite people on the planet. Let's not get carried away with Melissa Lee, okay? But yes, well, I want to get back. I, I want to sure. get back on the show, so I'm going to do what I have to do here. So let's start with your approaches. You're traders. You're actively trading the market throughout the day, probably before the market even opens, probably into the night. But you're also talking about it all the time. So guys, let's talk about your approach, your process. What's the thing you look at when you first get up in the morning? What are you reading? And how are you going into your day? Yeah, for me, I appreciate that question. For me, it's always about the bond markets. I think bond markets, global interest rates and currencies, they sort of drive everything. So I want to see what's going on. And for years, that was pretty boring and mundane. Obviously, for the last couple of years, it's been anything but. So I want to see what's going on in that world. I obviously want to see what's going on in some of the foreign markets. And then I take my attention to some of the stories that are coming out. Did somebody pre-announce? Who reported earnings? Those types of things. What is top of mind? I actually look at your website to see what people are talking about and what's going on in their minds. Obviously, sentiment drives so much of what we see in the market. And then you start to look at charts and try to figure out if things are oversold, overbought. Are we at a level where the risk reward sets up well? And it's fun because there's so many different things to look at and you're trying to piece together a puzzle. And I will tell you, if you watch Fast Money with any regularity, I could do all of these things correctly and still be wrong in the outcome in terms of what the market does. But you know what? That's what makes it interesting. And that's why you're constantly learning in our business. Yeah. I mean, being wrong is a part of it, especially if you're willing to go out there and talk about it. But you guys are talking about dozens of stocks every day, some that you're following, some you're not following, some you don't care about, but you know what's coming up in the news. That's part of the programming of what you do. But how do you stay on top of it in terms of all the things you have to cover? Because your responses, even to earnings that break, I've been on the show and an earnings report will come out. You guys will talk about it 30 seconds later. So Dan, what's your process in terms of looking not only what you have to talk about, but what you want to trade, how you want to put money to work? Well, it's funny. So my first job in the business was 1997. It was at a firm called SAC Capital, Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets. That was his firm. And it was a very trading oriented shop back then. And you know, it's interesting at that time, it was sometime between 97 and 98, Everybody on that desk were kind of generalists at the time, but he made a very concerted effort. He took all of these guys and they were all guys, okay? And he said, you're going to go out and you're going to follow technology. You're going to follow financials. You're going to follow industrials. You're going to follow energies. And you're going to go out and find an analyst to work with you 
So you're going to be the PM trader and that person's going to be the brains. You're going to be the one taking risk. You're going to be the one managing that risk. You're going to be the one identifying sentiment opportunities, catalyst opportunities. That person's going to do the fundamental research and you're going to marry the two. And that was like a really interesting moment for me very early on in my career. And when you look around most of these trading desks or most of these kind of investment houses, whether they be institutional long only or, you know, buy side long short, you can't be a generalist anymore. You have to focus. And so that's one of the things for me. I learned that early. I happened to have the opportunity being one of the few guys who were in my mid-20s at the time where all of these symbols, XCIT, YHOO, AOL, were moving around. Steve Cohen wanted to trade them. The guys who were there wanted, they were like, I'm not even going to pretend to understand what these companies do. You go figure that out. And so I had that opportunity. So I really started to focus on tech. And so for me, I don't like to get too far out outside of a vertical. So on Fast Money, for instance, there will be segments that I don't say a word because I'm not great in energy. I'm not great in industrials or home builders, but I really love tech. I've been following it for 25 years. So for me, I try to stay really focused. I try to find opportunities where something has gone one way too far and the sentiment has just shifted to a point where I know I'm going to be a little early. But if I understand the story and I understand market sentiment, there's going to be a great trading opportunity for me. So that's really how I focus. So I start my day, I'm scouring facts at, I look at the journal, I look at FT, I look at all the stuff because to me, I don't learn a lot from that, but what's on page like A1 is really interesting because that's the thing that most of the normies are most focused on. So to me, I think that's really interesting. And I love the sentiment work that you guys do. I love when you come on Fast Money talking about the surveys because I know that you have hundreds of thousands of participants in that surveys. You have millions of searches that go into that work and to me, I love knowing what the most of the people are focused on at that moment. Knowing what people want to know is super powerful. We call that the power of intent. But you guys are out there professionals trading the market. A lot of our listeners, we're passive investors. Maybe we're investing through our 401k. Maybe we have a brokerage account on the side. It's okay for us to do nothing. But for you guys, you got to put money to work. You're professional. So in this environment, lately, you've watched these trends in motion for the first quarter. Let's start with you, Dan. Is trends in motion stay in motion? How do you trade a market like this? Are you still sort of looking for those mismatches in opportunity or mismatches in trends around a particular stock or sector? How's your approach yeah, in this particular time? That's a great question. And so for me, what I try to do is this, like I just said, I have a very like strong sector focus and it usually is around tech and it's consumer oriented. And there's also financials in there too. So I try to take a bottoms up approach as it relates to individual names or these sub sectors. And then I take a macro view. So I go top down and then I try to meet in the middle and I try to figure out how this sector is going to be perceived in the macro environment that I think we're going to have. And Guy and I have this thing where now, you know, because we're on TV and we're on social and we do the podcast audio and then we have our live streaming things. We have so many people coming at us in so many different ways. And they're like, sometimes if we are on the other side of whatever the market is doing, they're like, guys, trade the market that you have. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard because, you know, the whole, Wayne Gretzky thing, let's skate to where the puck is going. And we go back and forth between people raging at us about being a bit contrarian at the moment. And I got to tell you, if you look at some of the most successful traders, for the most part, they are not trading the market that they have. They're setting up for the next big inflection point. So that's kind of how I think about opportunities in the market. And I know that's contrary to the people who are like the loudest on FinTwit or whatever it is, but that to me 
is a really important part about it. You got to be willing to be a little early. You got to be willing to have some losses. And that comes down to conviction and the work that you do in the process that you have. And I'll just say one last thing on this. Guy and I have been saying, we're bearish right now. And the market, like we just said, is raging right into quarter end as we're recording this on the last day of March. The NASDAQ is up more than 18%. The S&P is up 5.5% after a very difficult year. The charts look good, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. Like, if you were only trading on technicals, they look good. But I think what's happening, what comes next from a fundamental standpoint, from a macro standpoint, is not going to be good for risk assets, specifically stocks. And that's why I'm positioned the way I am. And Guy, you say you listen to the bond market. The stock market gets all the attention because it's sexy, but bonds really move things around here. So you look at that. Are you a technicals guy as well in terms of looking at formations and patterns, or are you weighing all these things together? Do you have your own gumbo that helps you sort of evaluate what to do? I'm a gumbo person in the market too. And I think a lot of people can do one or the other. They can look at technicals and not pay attention to fundamentals. Carter Worth does an extraordinary job with that. Other people are just fundamentally driven, which I get. But I think if you can somehow marry the two, look at the fundamentals and then sort of overlay the technicals on the back of it, you get a bit of a clearer picture. Now, I will tell you, in our business, being wrong is okay. Staying wrong is not okay. You know, I think one of the reasons people like fast money is because we're honest about our assessments. We're also honest about when we're right and wrong. So what I've learned and what I try to do is understanding that you're going to be wrong, but understanding that when you're right, that's when you're in the power position. And when you're wrong, you have to throw the ego out the window and just accept it and move on. You say you guys are bearish. Guy, for you, what's the thing that's scaring you most about the rest of this year? Well, I mean, what scares me is the volatility in the bond market. The fact that I don't think that 475 basis points of Fed rate hikes has been baked into the economy at all. I think there's a lag effect. I think that lag effect has been delayed by all the money that was floating around in the first place. And I don't think people are fully comprehending that. There are geopolitical risks out there that I don't want to get into. I think everybody understands that. There's this debt ceiling thing coming up that nobody is talking about, but I do think it's going to rear its ugly head at some point. And oh, by the way, the economy is slowing down. The economy slows down, margins contract. Margins contract, earnings contract. And what are you willing to pay for a dollar worth of earnings in this environment? And I think the market's got way ahead of itself. I understand people's want to be bullish. I totally get it. I just don't think that's the environment we're in right now. And Dan, what are people missing beyond that? I think the way Guy just framed it from a standpoint that there's plenty of headwinds for the economy and they haven't really been realized yet. And I think this kind of rising rate environment is not something that most investors are familiar with. And the pace in which rates have just gone up and what that means for the economy. I look at the outlook for the S&P 500 earnings for the balance of this year in the wake of what I think is a very stagflationary environment. And I know a lot of folks who are buying stocks right now think that the Fed is going to come to the rescue. Guy says this all the time, and they're going to pivot once the economy starts to weaken a little bit. But that focus on raising interest rates to battle inflation after probably the weirdest few years that most of us have ever been in. When you think about the pandemic and you think about the geopolitical situation with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that did to the energy supply chain, and then the focus on just deglobalization and what that means is like supply chains as a means of national security and this bipolar world that is just becoming more and more heightened between us and China and the economic ramifications of that. And so to me, I think you put all that together and I've never seen 
seen as uncertain of an economic time. And I don't think that the S&P 500 down one year, 20% last year, the S&P didn't even close down the year that the global economy shut down because global central banks threw trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to keep the global economy afloat. And that was reflected in risk assets going bottom left, upper right from the lows here. So what I worry is that this is going to be a period like 00102 where we have a protracted recessionary environment and we have a protracted bear market in the sexiest risk assets like you mentioned and the stock market is just one piece of this puzzle so last year might have just been the amuse bouche if you will of what we could be in for if we do have the sort of economic backlash from rates going to zero in 2020 trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus really weird situations as it relates to global supply chains and deglobalization. And I just, I don't think the stock market has reflected that yet. So I think the fact that the S&P is up 5% versus a NASDAQ that's up 18% at the end of Q1 leads me to believe that the S&P is going to be down on the year. And what happens at that point, whether it's in Q2 or Q3, when recession fears are much more heightened. And so to me, that's when investors make really bad decisions when they're offsides about things that they might not understand. And I don't pretend to understand them, but I pretend to understand the fact that we are going to have, I think, a gumbo, to use your term, of uncertainty about the global economy at some point in the not-so-distant future. And I think that will be reflected in an S&P that goes down in the year and a NASDAQ that's giving up a lot of these gains year-to-date. Yeah. And finally, there actually are alternatives, right? We went from Atina to Atara, right? There are realistic alternatives now. You can put your money in the bank and get 4 or 5%. Why not? Let's do a lightning round here. I want your quick takes on things. First of all, let's start with your biggest influences. Dan, let's start with you. Who's been your biggest influence in the business? Who have you learned the most from? I mean this sincerely. I mean, Guy Adami was one because when I started doing CNBC in 2009, for me, it was figuring out how to marry my experience, which was really trading oriented to an audience of people that are not trading as aggressively as we ever were. And Guy's ability to kind of break down some, I think, sophisticated topics. Okay. You can either go to Investopedia and you can really learn it, or you can listen to a Guy Adami on Fast Money talking to the people in a way that is accessible and in a way Way that really is meant to help them. It's not to show how smart he is. He's not selling something, come put your money with me or this and that, whatever. So to me, for the last 15 years of my career, that has been really important to me. And he's been, I think, a great mentor in that regard. And he's as smooth as the other side of the pillow as Stuart. My man. Uh, Scott would say, who's been your biggest influence guy? No, I listen, I appreciate that, Dan. That's kind of you. And you know, I feel the same way about you. I will tell you, my biggest influence is probably my mother, one of five women that graduated from Fordham Law School in 1963 at a time when women were not doing that. And her lesson to me was, you know, don't take from anybody and don't allow people to dictate what you can and can't do in life. So that resonates with me from that moment she told me till today. And, you know, I might sound at times a bit, I don't know, cavalier or whatever it is, but it's from a place where, you know, I don't allow people to dictate and nobody's really going to tell me what to do, say, you know, feel those types of things. And it's served me well so far. I mean, I'm going to turn, I'm going to change handles in December to a six handle. So we'll see how far it gets me post 60, Caleb. Well, three cheers for mom. I feel the same way about my mom. All right. Favorite finance movie. There's been some good ones over the last decade or two, but I got to know your number one guy. Let's start with you. Well, obviously the king of all finance movies is Wall Street. I mean, we used to quote that thing on a daily basis. 
in the late 80s. But I will tell you, an underrated Wall Street movie is Boiler Room because Vin Diesel is just the And I'll tell you, Ben Affleck coming in for about six minutes, that scene in that conference room, I'll watch that on a loop. So those are my top two. Yeah, he's coming in throwing 105 miles an hour, just like Alec Baldwin in uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Great choices right there. And Blue Horseshoe does love Endicott Steel. All right, Dan, yours. Mine was The Wolf of Wall Street. I started my career in the business at a hedge fund. And SAC Capital at the time was looked down upon. I'm telling you, like if you were working at an investment bank or you were at a big mutual fund complex and we would like roll into the same conferences, industry conferences, you know, brokerage conferences, and they'd look at us and they thought we were the guys pushing penny stocks out in Long Island, a little old ladies and stuff like that. So that sentiment like really resonated with me. I know that we were doing something very different. We were trading very wealthy, people's private pools of capital. So we didn't have the responsibilities or, you know, some of the issues as it related to any of those issues. But I love that movie. I love Leo. I love Jonah Hill in that movie. The whole cast was absolutely amazing. And so to me, I just think that that movie in a very entertaining way highlights some of the ways that things could go very, very wrong and why regular investors need to keep their antennas up and they need to be educated about the products in which they're investing in. You guys are on TV all the time. You're financial media stars. But if someone were to play you in a prestige TV series or a movie, who would you want that to be, Guy? Can I bring him back from the aftermath? Because it would be Dean Martin. I think Dean Martin is one of the coolest people of all time. So if Dean Martin could come back and portray me in the movie, absolutely. But if, in fact, you're not allowed to go down that route, I'll settle for the aforementioned Ben Affleck. So two pretty good choices. Grazie, prego, scusi. Why not have Dean do it? He's the man. How about you, Dan? Who's playing you? This actually comes, I think, from our very dear friend and co-panelist on Fast Money, Karen Feinerman. She once told me that Jason Bateman would maybe play me in the movie, that sort of thing. And I'm a huge fan of his. He was actually the director and star of one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, which was Bad Words. And he's obviously the director and star of Ozark. But I just love his sensibilities because he's like, can be a great, serious actor. I love his snark, but he's also really funny, too. You guys are big music fans. I know that. I'm going to go with the classics here, but I want you to rank them. I'm going to give you six names. Give me your at least your top three or rank them in order. The Stones, Zeppelin, The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, or Bruce Springsteen. I'll go first. I mean, it's Zeppelin and everybody else. And I like what you did there. My top five, if I may. I mean, it's Zeppelin on my 835 song Spotify playlist. I have over 50 Zeppelin songs. So it's Zeppelin one. I think you'll be surprised by number two the Almond Brothers. Their pilgrimage to the Beacon Theater each March was something I went to on a frequent basis. That's number two. Underrated band, Queen. Freddie Mercury, the greatest front person in the history of rock and roll. Number four, I'm going to surprise you, REM. Michael Stipe killing it in the 80s. And number five, The Who. Underrated in my pole position, but the genius of Pete Townsend cannot be overstated. They call him the seeker. How about you, Dan? Give me your top five there. You don't have to pick from that list, but I gave you some I gave you some no, foundational I, picks. I appreciate that. And you know, if Melissa Lee was asking this question, she would have gotten all up in Guy's Grill because you played the game, not the game that Caleb wanted you to play. You just kind of went off script a little yeah, bit. So I guess I he do. just kind of changed the game for us. I'll do that too. I mean, listen, I grew up on The Boss. I grew up on U2. I grew up on The Grateful Dead. But when I got to college, okay, it was in August, August of 1991, it was that period where 
Pearl Jam's 10 came out, Nirvana's Nevermind, Blood Sucked Magic, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so to me, Pearl Jam is one that is, I guess we'd use the term on my Mount Rushmore. So I'd put two phases here when I was an 80s kid listening to rock and roll, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, they were like all up in there with the Grateful Dead and the boss. And I'm going to see the boss this weekend twice at MSG and then at Barclays. And I can't wait for that. And then I just have to put Pearl Jam. And I know this sounds pretty cliche, but Pearl Jam, Nirvana, the grunge thing was like the soundtrack of my college career. And I still see Pearl Jam. I saw him eight times last year. Yeah, we're, we date ourselves, but those were good days. Absolutely. All right, let's go out on this. We'd love to ask our guests for their favorite investing term or finance term. What's that term? Guy, we'll start with you. That just makes you feel good. That just resonates in your mind. That's so important to you in your process. Well, it's not about my process, but the term that I'm the most familiar with and most fond of and takes me back to 1986 is backwardation. And I'm not going to get into what it means, but there were a bunch of dudes on the trading desk at Drexel Burnham Lambert that were throwing that around left and right. And I had no freaking idea what they were talking about. There were no Google machines back then. But when I hear backwardation, it brings me back to a much simpler time in my life. Yeah, it is a dangerous yoga pose, but we'll actually put the term, link to the term in the show notes. All right, Dan, take us home with your favorite term. Mine is consensus. And we hear that term a lot, consensus estimates, right? And so if you go to FactSet and you look at the consensus estimates for earnings for Q1 or this, and that, and so to me, what I've spent my career is trying to figure out what are the outliers? How do we get to the outliers? That whole notion of like herd mentality. And I know that a lot of times there's safety in numbers. And so you want to be in the consensus and if everyone loves Apple, that sort of thing. But I look at just like for example, Apple, and Guy has mentioned this now numerous times over the last couple months here, Apple trading at 26 times with expected growth of 5% earnings and sales. That is what the consensus is. And really, to me, the trade is, okay, that stock's up 25%. Let's figure out where does consensus move? Does it go higher or does it go lower? And to me, positioning in front of situations like that is the most important thing, at least how I do this as it relates to investing and trading. So to me, consensus, herd mentality, those are things really important me. Yeah, those are two great terms. We'll link to them in the show notes. And folks, follow these gents. Guy Adami, Dan, Nathan, the founders of Risk Reversal. You see them on Fast Money. Go to Risk Reversal. Check out all the great programming they have there. Follow these folks across social media, some of the smartest folks that I know in this business and some of the nicest folks. So good to have you on the Investopedia Express. And I'm really excited to be on your podcast too. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Caleb. You're the man, Caleb. Thank you, sir. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. Great suggestions from Dan and Guy at Risk Reversal too, by the way. We're going to link to those in the show notes. And this week, we're going to take the term ourselves. And that is because April is National Financial Literacy Month. But it's our mission here at Investopedia every month. You know that. We believe that it's never too early or too late to begin learning these skills and applying them to your daily life. Managing our finances and planning for the future can seem pretty daunting at times, especially after the year we've just lived through. A 40-year high in inflation, a bear market worries about a recession in our nation's banking system. It's safe to say we've been through a lot in our financial lives recently. But having that strong, fundamental understanding of how to use your money, no matter the circumstances, is core to creating stability in your life for you and your family. 
However, the basic financial skills adults need often aren't taught in a classroom. Technology's helped open those doors, that's true, but more education about these new platforms and assets is required, and that's what Investopedia does best. We've committed to extending our reach and resources to schools and underserved communities that have traditionally been left out of this important conversation. This year, we've created free curriculum materials to support today's investing environment, and we're going to link to them in the show notes. They're in our Financial Literacy Resource Center, and we've updated our guide for adults of all ages too. While this is only the beginning, these resources will help you become an engaged and educated participant in the ever-evolving financial markets. We know that a lot of you who tune into The Express every week are already well on your way to building a strong financial foundation. So we ask you to share the love with people in your lives and communities who are just getting started or who could use some extra help. Pay it forward, as they say, and we wish you all a happy Financial Literacy Month, year, and future. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.